Our scripture lesson is Romans chapter 13, verse 11 through 14, found on page 142 on your New Testament pew Bible. Besides this, you know what time it is, how it is now the moment for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we became believers. The night is far gone, the day is near. Let us then lay aside the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us live honorably as in the day, not in reveling and drunkenness, not in debauchery and licentiousness, not in quarreling and jealousy. Instead, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Listen to the voice of the Spirit speaking to the church. Hear the Holy Gospel according to Matthew. But about that day and hour, no one knows, neither the angels of heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. For as the days of Noah were, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing until the flood came and swept them all away. So too will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two will be in the field, one will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding meal together, one will be taken and one will be left. Keep awake, therefore, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an unexpected hour. Grace, peace, and mercy are yours from the triune God. Amen. Our gospel reading this morning speaks of people being snatched out of fields and God coming like a thief in the night. Thief in the Night also happens to be the title of a 1970s low-budget made-for-Christians movie that scared the bejesus out of an entire generation of children. (laughs) Children whose churches told them that at any minute Jesus could return and all the super-duper good people would just float up into heaven like Mary Poppins and never come back. And their reward for never doing anything fun or enjoyable while on earth was gold mansions in heaven from which they could enjoy watching the left-behind bad people suffer. You know, the ones who had stolen a candy bar or who drunk a beer or who were gay or who used swear words, which always sounded as if heaven would be like a spiritually sadistic dessert buffet for those who suffered nothing but Christian diet foods their whole lives. A longtime parishioner of mine said that as a child he would come home from school and his mom would still be at the store and if he couldn't see anyone else on his block, he'd get panicky thinking they had been raptured and he was left behind. And he'd basically have an anxiety attack until his mom came home. And then he couldn't even tell her why he was so upset because she'd start to ask what he'd done to deserve to be left behind. Uh, This kind of teaching is, A, great for selling millions of books, but B, not so great for keeping millions of children mentally healthy.
So my instinct is to just aggressively avoid texts like this one we just heard from Matthew. I'd like to say that the rapture enthusiasts can just have all that second coming nonsense. I'd like in my historical critical way to say, look, the first and second generations of Christians were convinced Jesus was seriously coming right back any minute. But now it's 2,000 years later, so let's just forget about that part because we're embarrassing ourselves. I'd love to treat the second coming as a vestigial doctrine that had a function a very long time ago, but now not so much. I don't know, like maybe a theological appendix, which has for sure gone septic. (laughs) But I can't do that, um, unfortunately. I can't, and actually I won't. And the reason is because as someone who has pastored a lot of people who were fed spoons full of nonsense and told it was Jesus. I know what absorbing the wrong stories does to the spirits of human beings. It's not just the church. We live in a world where we tell the wrong stories. We live in a world where we are told the wrong stories. We live in a world where we believe the wrong stories. And those stories are failing us, good people. In fact, in some cases, I'd say that those stories are killing us. Clover and I had lunch this week for three hours, like we do. And we spent so much of the time talking about the deaths that have touched our lives and our communities over the last couple years. Deaths that were not due to accident, or disease, or old age. And we asked each other the question, what is happening? I don't have a simple, satisfying answer to that because the answer is complex. But I do think that the opioid crisis and the suicide epidemic, which are tearing apart our communities and families right now, are both tinged with something very particular. And that thing is hopelessness. And I believe that hopelessness is what seeps into us when we believe stories about ourselves and our lives in the world that are just far too small. When we believe that the present circumstance of our lives is all there is and all there ever can be. When we believe that our pain is all there is in all that ever can be. When we believe our failings are all there is and all there ever can be. I may not be as certain of the details as some Christians, but I will not just walk away from talking about the future coming of Christ because if the stories we absorb from church and the culture are harming us, If the stories are wrong, if the stories create anxiety and not hope, we don't just walk away. We tell better stories. And the story we tell here in this place is a story that is not small. And to be sure, our sacred story isn't just about what was in the past. It is a story about what is and what will be. Our sacred story of God and God's people is history and reality and prophecy all woven together. 
In fact, in my liturgical tradition, in the Eucharistic prayer, we stand around a table with bread and wine and we remember the night Jesus was proclaimed and we proclaim the mystery of this faith by all saying these simple words, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. Christ has, Christ is, but also Christ will. Not to sound too metaphysical, but there is and there has been and there will be only one communion table. And it seats everyone. This table right here is just one of millions of leaves that extend from the one set by Jesus the night he gathered with his faltering friends for a meal that tasted of freedom. And his friends have gathered around it every day somewhere in the world and have been fed by him every day since. There's only the one table. What I'm saying is that the idea that God was active in the world in the past, is active now, and will be in the future, is baked into our sacred story. And it's baked in because we need it. We need to remember that the current circumstances of our lives are not all there is. We need to remember that we are not as isolated as the false stories in our culture make us feel. Because we're part of a very big, big story. And we need to remember that we belong to a very big story of God and God's people because in a world where everything feels like it's closing in on us, in a world where we have to earn and prove and relentlessly maintain our own worth, in a world where we suddenly have access to -to up-to-the-minute images of every form of human success and every form of human suffering all across the world, of course our anxieties jar us awake. But what we need isn't to just try harder to feel better and make it all work. What we need is a bigger story in which we're not the only source of our own hope. What we need is to hear that dangerous rumor that there's life beyond death and hope beyond suffering. It is dangerous to say that our hopes are not something in our grasp that there's a future created not by ourselves, but by God. It goes against every Western individualistic message of self-propulsion we've ever received. And we Christians don't just say it, we celebrate it. We confess that our hope is not in the Dow Jones, but in the God of Abraham and Sarah. Our hope is not in the government, but in the God of Isaiah and Mary Magdalene. Our hope is not in the nonprofit industrial complex, but in the God of Teresa of Avila and Teresa of Calcutta. And to be clear, our hope is also not in our ability to be hopeful. It's not in our ability to be politically correct. It's not in our ability to get anything right whatsoever. Our hope is in the God of Jonah and Hagar because foundationally, we're a people of a story. And it is through that story that we view ourselves and others and history and the whole world, a story that a light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot, will not, shall not overcome it. And this is not escapism, mind you, to live in this story. Because here's what I want you to hear. When we stand with one hand reaching back to the hope of the prophets 
and one hand reaching forward to the promises of the future, we can stand firmly in the reality of the present and not have that reality consume us. Being reminded of the story of the past and the story of the future is an antidote to the despair that comes from the myopic stories that are wrapped up only in the present. This is why the first Sunday of Advent, the beginning of the church year, is when we talk about the end of the world because Christianity is a spiritual Mobius strip. Which means that even in the midst of personal turmoil and political fear and cultural uncertainty and devastating loss, we can stand here in the reality of the present and confess that the story is still being written Because the story of God and God's people is written on the tablets of our broken and healed hearts. It's written in the lives of our ancestors. And it's written in the future of our children and our children's children. The story is so big. And I promise you, I promise you, it's still being written. Happy Advent. Amen.